A warm welcome to this new El Nobri podcast. I'm Henri Wagner, a partner at the banking practice at El Nobri in Luxembourg. Today's topic is quite exciting because it concerns all levels at print institutions, from the board to support staff via the operational and business people. So that's, I think, the pertinence is that we will be talking about a topic which is of relevance to everyone in a credit institution in Luxembourg and elsewhere. In recent years, internal governance issues have received increased attention from various international bodies. Their main was aimedly to correct institutions' weak or superficial internal governance practices as they were identified during the financial crisis. To address the potentially detrimental effects of poorly designed internal governance arrangements on the sound management of risk, to ensure effective oversight by the management body, to promote a sound risk culture, and to enable the competent authorities to supervise and monitor the adequacy of internal governance arrangements, the CSF updated in December last year its requirements on central administration, internal governance, and risk management. I think the prime reason for the update of this circular was to guarantee its alignment with relevant EBA guidelines on notably internal governance and on the assessment of the suitability of members of management bodies and key function holders. I think we should also mention that the 2019 EBA guidelines on outsourcing have, however, not yet been adopted by CCSF, with exception of the IT cloud-based piece, which has been adopted in Luxembourg. I think it's also important to mention that there are four particular areas of attention for the regulator in relation to governance. The first point would be the sustainability of the business model, which obviously is quite important to regulators to ensure that every credit institution is viable from a, a business perspective. And then the second point, which is a sort of a novelty in the sense that there's enhanced attention of the regulator on this, is the delineation of the risk profile. And the third point, which has already been there for quite some time, is the efficacy of the three lines of defense at the credit institution. And finally, also additional focus has been given to board oversight and the responsibilities of board members. To discuss this fascinating topic, I'm joined by two experts within our practice who are familiar with this topic and who have spent quite some time in going through the changes brought by the regulator in his circular. The first is Carol Schmidt. She is counsel in the banking regulatory practice. And um, Carol, I have a first question for you. And if someone asked you to summarize the changes that were brought by the adapted circular in a few words, what, what would be these? Thank you, Henri. It's hard to summarize all the changes made in the revised circular in only a few words, but I would definitively highlight the following key topics. And the first word I would pick is updating, as the revised circular takes into account the latest regulatory developments at EU level and also formalizes certain administrative practices developed by the CSSF during the last year in the field of internal governance. 
the second world would obviously be risk. Hence, topics like risk identification, risk management, and more generally, the risk-based approach and the concept of risk cultures are key drivers for many of the changes that have been introduced in the revised circular and the new requirements in Poison Bank. And it's interesting to note that the new circular also refers to ESG risk, which is quite a trendy topic nowadays. A third word would be gradation, in that the revised circular clarifies all the implementation of the requirements may be adjusted to the profile of each credit institution. Significant institutions, which are now expressly and clearly defined by cross-reference to the Banking Act in the circular itself, are subject to enhanced governance requirements. Interestingly, the new circular also provides a clear list of elements that should be taken into account when applying the proportionality principle, and therefore this principle has been clarified which is very useful guidance for a bank to determine all the requirements of the revised circular should apply to it. Finally, formalization is the last word I will pick. More than before, a credit institution must have all the necessary documentary evidence to show that it is compliant with applicable requirements. I was just mentioning the proportionality assessment before, and the CSSF circular, for instance, now expressly requires that this assessment be formalized and endorsed by the management body. And maybe if I may, just one last point of attention for those listening to us, the revised circular applies only to credit institutions. A separate circular was adopted for investment firms to take into account the specificities of this other professional of the financial sector. Thank you, Carol. That's interesting. It's also interesting, I think, to note that while these changes seem to be uh, material, the regulator has expressed the view that they would be rather limited with overall little expected impact on governance internal arrangements in banks. I'm not quite sure whether I would be aligned on this view because, I mean, the devil is in the detail and there will be a number of changes which will be forthcoming. And that's one of the reasons, I think, also that the regulator has indicated that for banks that fall under its direct remit, which means the non-significant institutions under the SSM, the regulator will accept a period of tolerance of not more than one year for the adoption of the changes, and only, as I said, with regards to the changes brought by the circular. That's a good point, I think, for you to, to note that there is some leeway in terms of the sort of compliance uh, with the changes in the circular, and that you have one year to do so. But obviously, as, as I said, just with regards to the changes, because other things should already be in place. And there's also an expectation that the annual compliance statement for year-end 2021 will have to detail the gaps that will be existing and also why there have been delays in application. Now, coming to a more granular aspect of this circular and turning to André Kostika, who is an associate in our regulatory team. And André, um, should one understand that these changes will mainly affect operational issues, or are we sort of certain that there will be also changes which are of more strategic nature? Thank you very much, Henry. Although it may seem so at first sight, the changes are far from being purely operational. In fact, they impact the overall governance structure and internal controls of the credit institution. For example, to list only a few points, the revised circular 
reinforces the idea that board members have the overall responsibility to instill a compliance and risk culture within the credit institution. It also strengthens the rules governing the commitment, accountability, and liability of the management body. It further clarifies the distinction between the roles of the management body acting in an executive or supervisory function. Furthermore, it details how the different requirements apply depending on whether the credit institution has a one-tier or a two-tier corporate structure. The revised circular also reinforces the requirements regarding the nomination of an independent director. Significant banks must appoint at least one independent director. Less significant banks should consider whether the appointment of an independent director is necessary or not, and hence apply the comply or explain principle. Moreover, the revised circular highlights and clarifies the diversity requirements applicable at the level of the management body. In relation to this, it would be advisable, in our view, for banks to adopt appropriate internal policies and procedures. It also clarifies the appropriate trainings that must be delivered to the members of the management body upon onboarding as well as afterwards on an ongoing basis. It indicates that the authorized managers are subject to assessment by the board with regards to their performance. It highlights as well that all the discussions and deliberations of the management body should be adequately documented and detailed minutes of the meetings must be prepared. Finally, to conclude, it strengthens the fact that in its supervisory function, the management body should focus on and devote sufficient time to the oversight of risk, which is a key word throughout the revised circular. Thank you, Andre. I think from what you just said, it, it appears obvious to me that there is a sort of a, a change of tone that the regulator raises the bar in terms of requirements which will be coming to the bank's desk and which need to be satisfied by the banks. There was one topic, I think, which was discussed actively relates to the last point which you mentioned in terms of so the devotion of time to the running of a business, in particular also as regards the authorized management, where Luxembourg being a small country, there was the issue whether two authorized managers had to be physically present in Luxembourg. And there was some concern that the regulator saying that the two must be permanently in Luxembourg, that those residing in the greater region of Luxembourg could no longer be appointed as authorized manager. And there again, there has been some leeway and some flexibility. So as long as that person resides in the closer region to Luxembourg, he or she will be able to be an authorized manager going forward. And also, the regulator has confirmed that in terms of COVID, remote work is possible even at the level of authorized management. So that's, I think it's good news and will be reassuring for our clients. There's another point which I think is important and it was mentioned several times, is the question of risk. And I therefore understand that this is a key point in the amended circular. Carol, could you perhaps illustrate, for those who are listening to us, how risk is put at the heart of internal governance? For sure. The CSF has increased its expectation in respect of how credit institutions should approach and manage risk. And let me just mention a few examples of new requirements in the revised circular illustrating this. The risk control function, which 
until now was more an ex post control function, should now adopt a more active role in advising and assisting the management body and the authorized management. Another example is, for instance, for a significant institution, the head of the risk control function must be an authorized manager who is independent and individually responsible for that function, with also a right to challenge the authorized management's decision. For smaller institutions and where the principle of proportionality does not permit to have this, let's say, independent person at the level of the authorized management, the CSF nonetheless gives some leeway in that it provides that another member of the institution staff, who should be a member of what the CSF calls encadrement supérieur, so we could translate it as senior management, may assume this function. Another interesting point is that the revised circular really stresses the fact that credit institutions must adopt clear processes for risk-taking and, importantly, define a risk appetite which must be approved by the supervisory body. And finally, this is a new element, an interesting one, I would say, the revised circular introduces an entire chapter, which is chapter 9 in part 3, dedicated to the management of risks associated with depository bank activities. And this being said, let me stress one last point. I know your query was focused on risk, but it's important to bear in mind that the revised circular reinforces generally the applicable requirements in terms of internal control and sound governance. For instance, the prohibition to outsource certain functions such as compliance or the incompatibility rules between certain functions have been further clarified. But I would say that the CSSF even goes one step further in terms of regulatory expectations by stating that for smaller credit institutions with only two authorized managers, and if after you have assigned the risk-taking function and the risk-control function between them, you can still identify conflict of interest which cannot be effectively mitigated, a third authorized manager should be appointed. So it's the entire structure of the credit institution which should be defined on a risk-based approach. Thanks, Carol. I think that's, that's a good point you, you make there because it relates to the sacrosanct principle of proportionality, uh, which has been reinstated or reinforced in the amended uh, circular, which I think is extremely helpful for Luxembourg given the, um, so the variety of institutions which we have in terms of non-complex small banks and larger complex banks. So proportionality is really something which will be extremely helpful going forward. And we know that the regulator adopts a very sort of constructive position in that regard. Turning back to um, André and, and um, to those of you who belong to wider banking groups, André, to which extent do the requirements of the revised circular extend beyond the border of Luxembourg? Thank you, Henry. This is a very good point indeed. The revised circular applies to Luxembourg-based credit institutions on a solo, sub-consolidated and consolidated basis and in line with the changes introduced by CRD5 to Luxembourg financial holding companies. Nonetheless, it also applies, mutatis mutandis, to their branches and subsidiaries that are within the scope of consolidation, as well as those that are not. This means, in practice, that the Luxembourg parent should put in place control mechanisms and governance arrangements, basically for all their activities and risks, including at the level of their subsidiaries, financial or non-financial, within or outside the scope of consolidation. Furthermore, 
These mechanisms and arrangements should be tailored and implemented based on the proportionality principle. As a final observation, it is worth mentioning that the revised circular provides certain flexibility in order to ease the regulatory burden on credit institutions. For example, an institution that has created three permanent and independent internal control functions is not obliged to create control functions at the level of group entities, again, based on the principle of proportionality. The only condition is that the institution carries out regular and frequent on-site inspections in these group entities. Thank you, Andre, and thank you, Carol, for um, your comments on this, as I said, interesting topic. Perhaps to conclude with, I think that the ECSF has set a benchmark in Luxembourg, which is sound included banking. These are the, the magic words for the regulator. And the interesting thing is that the regulator says that that's what you have to achieve. The way you do this is your choice, and you have the right to choose or select the means to reach that goal. So in a sense, the regulator, I think, sends a message to the Luxembourg banking community saying that you big guys, you know what you have to do, you know what is the target, and so achieve this to the best of your means, which I think opens also a door for an interesting line of communication between the regulator and the regulated entities. In, and in relation to this uh, benchmark, there are sort of key, four key factors which are, I think need to be borne in mind. The first is that you need to have a clear business model and, as we said, a risk appetite. You need to have a strong support for control functions. And another point which the regulator mentioned, which is sense of the new, is stated as the absence of excessive pressure from shareholders, which I think is an interesting feature because we know that there have been cases in the past where shareholders had a very active role in relation to Luxembourg Credit Institution, which were not always helpful for the credit institution itself. So that is something which is also on the radar of the regulator, so the interference from shareholders. And finally, what we also said is you need to have a supervisory board body which critically assesses business sustainability and risks. And as you will have appreciated, there's a lot more in, in the circular, and probably again, it's paradise for, for lawyers in the sense that there will be lots of questions in, in this space, and we are be happy to answer these and to help you navigating this complex framework. As I said, many thanks, Carol, many thanks, André, and to you, uh, stay tuned, there will be more podcasts to come in the near future. Thank you. Bye.